Heavenly Father, we do trust in your Holy Spirit to guide us into your truth, Lord, to convict us in those areas where we need to be convicted. But you would do it in a gentle way, Lord. You would do it in a way that, that wins us over uh, to your side. And Lord, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I do have an update on the verses that we're going to look at. We're going to look actually at the first 16 verses as opposed to the last section of, of that chapter. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 1 through 16. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. You have a seat. When we go, when I was a kid growing up, going to the lake, we had a boat, a boat that was tied to an anchor in the lake. And occasionally, you know, that, was, that anchor and rope was tested when storms would come along. The boat would blow about and, and banter about. And there were, there were often times, especially when I was growing up, when the boat would get loose from that line. And it would drift amidst the waves and the wind and the storm. And so that the next morning when we would get up and I'd look out on the lake and there's no boat. Uh, so it was a very common thing for us to either use another boat, a friend's boat, or one of the other ones available to us, and, and just go look, riding along the shore of the boat until we could find it. And sometimes we'd just find it perfectly fine, it drifted into a nice gentle place, and sometimes you find it, and it's beating up against the rocks. It's just getting destroyed. 
So we'd bring the back, we'd reconnect it to its anchor. But there is a danger, obviously, in that. You need to have a strong anchor and a strong connection to that anchor in order to protect your boat from the winds and the waves and the storms that come along. And that really is an analogy that Paul is using here. He talks about, you know, don't be like children tossed to and fro with the waves and the wind with every deceitful scheme and cunning doctrine of man because it can wind up causing bad things to happen. Whether you just remain adrift for quite a while, who knows where you're going to end up or you're crashing against the rocks little by little being destroyed. And the imagery that he's using, of course, if you think about the anchor and what exactly is the anchor that is actually immovable, it is the solid truth, it is Jesus Christ, he is that anchor. But what is the rope? What is the chain or the rope that connects the boat, the individual, to the anchor? Well, the image that Paul is getting at is, well, that is the church. The church is the rope or the chain that connects you as a person to the anchor that is Jesus Christ. The church is a very important thing for us to be connected to and to understand. And I I know I seem to be beating this drum in the last few weeks as we've been talking about this series of building life together. And we first looked at Acts 2.42 about the first characteristics we saw of the early believers, those, those believers who who put their faith in the work that Jesus Christ had done as he pronounced himself to be victorious over death through the resurrection. And the very first characteristic that we saw was that they were devoted. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all of those things, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and the prayers, happen in the context of what he calls that fellowship. So the encouragement was for you was to, first of all, To be a follower of Christ means to be devoted to the fellowship that he has created as a result of the work that he's done. And then last week, we looked at another passage that talked about reminding us that you are God's people. You're not God's individuals. You're not God's persons. It's not as though that there is this private personal relationship that you have with God. No, you are part of a, a people that does not exist with a relationship to God apart from each other. That was the the picture of Old Testament Israel. They were brought together to be a nation when God rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt. They weren't just a loose collection of individuals. They were brought together to be one people, to be one nation with God as their king. And as a result, they were given specific uh, rules to govern what what it looked like to live in that particular context. That's the Mosaic Covenant. But the idea is that you are one single people, and I am your God. And all the different images, of course, we have in the Bible about the church as a body, which we're going to talk about today, a little bit today. The church as a bride. And you think, well, how many brides does Jesus have? Well, he has has one bride. Not a bunch of individual brides, but just one. There has to be this sense of unity. And I know in kind of American pop Christianity, there is this idea that, uh, popular idea that I love Jesus, but man, I just don't have anything to do with the church. Right? I mean, that's like, that's like saying if, if, Jesus, if the church is the bride of Jesus, and you're saying, Jesus, I love you, but I just despise your bride. Can you imagine if you said that to somebody, how far your relationship would be able to go? I mean, it, it, 
any faithful good husband is going to come to the defense of his bride. So your relationship can't develop long if you remain in the situation where you say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride because his bride has hurt me. Well, guess what? The bride has hurt everybody. <laughs> you are not unique in that. The bride is made up of a bunch of people who are not yet glorified, a bunch of people who are still in the midst of sin, continually sinning against one another. And that somehow God uses the, even those sins of those people within that context, as long as they remain committed to one another, to do the hard work of shaping and knocking the rough edges and the hard things off. We would say it is necessary for us to be in a church that hurts us to some degree because that's how the work of sanctification happens. When you're in a place where you have the freedom to be able to, to say hard things and to be able to hear hard things and know that the other people are committed to you. Now, that's challenging. It's hard. It doesn't fit. You know, we talked about a few weeks ago when things get hard, our tendency is to run and to build walls and try to escape and simply find another body to be part of. And a lot of people do that. I mean, there's lots of good churches, you know, in all the cities that we've probably been familiar with. And it's in, in Katy, I personally know a lot of other pastors who I highly respect. And I know when they get up on Sunday morning that they are preaching the same gospel that I am preaching. I mean, we pray for those when we get together. So it's not as though if you left here, you could go find another church. You could certainly go find another gospel-believing, you know, God-loving, Holy Spirit-empowered church. But that's not the point. You would be running away from those very things that God has put in your place to either shape you or to shape others or to shape both of you. Those are necessary. Because when you go to that other church, yes, you can find another healthy church, but at the same time, you are continuing a pattern of running. Mo I, I am finding the older I get as a pastor... The more experience I have in the pastor, when we have new people come to visit Cornerstone who have come from another church, and we're just so excited to have new people here, you know, we welcome them in, and later to find out, then they get their feelings hurt or something, uh, some expectation isn't met or some decision is made that they don't agree with, and so they choose to go somewhere else. And then you go, then, it's only often then that we go back and look and see, well, this has been a pattern in these people's lives. They've been bouncing from church to church to church. Therefore, circumventing the very work of sanctification that God has put in place to do for them and through them to others. So, we need to love the church. And in this, you know, we, as we've talked about building life together, and we've talked about the necessity of devoting ourselves to the body, we've talked about the necessity of understanding that we are one people, not a collection of individuals. This text really helps us to push that through and to say, well, how do we actually do that? How do we build life together, and what does it look like? So Paul, you know, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, is really giving doctrinal truth. Here's what's true about what God has done. Now, when he moves to chapter 4, he starts to say, okay, therefore, here's how we are to live in light of this. Here's what we are to do. Here's how it works. This is what's true. Now, here's how it works. Here's how you apply it. So we jump in. And we see, first of all, that he is, and I, I want to expound on, on two things, two-point sermon, you like that? Uh, the gifts of the people of God and the love of the people of God. That's really how he is working to build up his church. And if you think about 
what this text is dealing with. He's dealing with there is a problem, that there is a tendency that we, want to get, that we, are, to, that we are tossed to and fro by the, every wind and wave of doctrine. And we certainly see that in today's world. We see uh, certainly a shifting set of values, a, si- a shifting way of, that, that, that's held in common by our culture of looking and interpreting the world. You know, the values are changing. And we see that happening. So we can see what, we, you, what you might call a doctrinal way of looking at life changing right before our eyes. And it is very strong in the current that it pulls people along, especially younger people. As our younger people go away to school or go away to college and they're, they're hearing things that are different from what they perhaps heard in their own homes. And there's a, there's a, a movement that's moving in that direction. And it's very hard to resist the pull of that current. In fact, I would suggest to you that it is impossible to resist the current that's pulling you unless you have something that is holding on to you. Again, your, your membership of the church. So we look at how does this work? There's, we have to look at the gifts of the people of God. How does this church actually help you resist this pull of the current culture? Because what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal, as he spells out here, that he, he shares a couple of times that we see the theme going on, that this body grows up, that this body reaches mature manhood. So verse 13, for example, till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the whole goal that God has in mind with the work that he has done is to bring up this body to its maturity as a whole, to its maturity. And you somehow, as the individual members of the body, are part of the tools that are being used by God, ordained by God, to do that very thing, to bring the body to maturity. So the first way he does that is, is by the giving of gifts. The giving of gifts. And there's two aspects of the giving of gifts. The one of the giving of gifts is the giving of, of people who are gifted. So if you look, for example, in verse 11... It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So that's the first gift. He gave you offices, officers. He gave you people that were uniquely gifted and called to serve in these roles as apostles, which were unique, of course, to those who were the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're establishing the foundation of how we understand the personal work of Christ. But also these others, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Do you look at these as God's gift to you and to the church for the equipping of the body? Because these are all, by the way, sinners themselves. And at one point or another, I would imagine that each one of you has gotten, I've said something that you've disagreed with or I've hurt your feelings or some other pastor has hurt your feelings or said something you disagree with. I mean, it is inevitable. But nonetheless, that doesn't nullify the fact that these people are God's gift to His people. They have been set apart, uniquely ordained, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this particular work. Now, there's all kinds of implications in that when you think about the particular structure of the church. Local churches have a particular structure that is built on this whole idea that you have real accountability to real people who themselves are sinners. That's why in the book of Hebrews it says, you know, submit to your leaders in the Lord, for they will have to give an accounting of your soul. 
I was thinking about that this morning as I was walking, doing my walk, and that is a terrifying thing (laughs) to think about as a shepherd, as a teacher, that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account of you. That terrifies me. (laughs) I'm ready to quit. (laughs) I don't want to bear that. That is a terrifying thought. But at the same time, it says you are called to submit to your leaders in the Lord. Because why? That's what God has given to you as a gift for building up and equipping the body of Christ. Sir, there is a a sense of responsibility. This is a gift that God has given. And you think about the different ways in which we look at how Christians act today or interact today. There are a lot of people who would who would call themselves apostles, especially if you go down to like Central America, there's a lot of self-appointed people who say they're apostles, self-appointed pastors. And that's not what we see here. These are God has given you. And as you go back and read through the pastoral epistles, specifically that Paul wrote for, his, for Timothy and Titus, who he, had, who he had put in charge of churches that he had helped plant, There is this instruction that these people are in their positions because of the laying on of hands of other people who have already been affirmed in those positions. So it's not as though the people themselves are choosing, who do we want to teach us? I mean, yes, we do vote when we have officers, but we're not voting necessarily for the person. We're voting affirming that, yes, we too trust that God has gifted and uniquely put this person uh, has prepared this person in advance, and we're, we're recognizing that. And so we bring them forth. They, they come in front of the congregation. We as elders come and we lay hands on them and we pray for them, which is a picture of God equipping the Holy Spirit that he's given to us upon them as well. That's the picture. As in contrast to the Facebook friends or the memes or the popular radio people who would like to espouse truth, and maybe they espouse good truth, and offer nuggets of wisdom here and there, but these are not, this is not the ordained means that God has given to the church. And we have to be careful about that. Lest we be, you know, tempted by every wind of doctrine. You know, I'm always not, I shouldn't say astounded, but I, I get on Facebook and you see a lot of people who in their, you know, in their desire to be an encouragement to other people, will post, you know, verses or they'll post memes or they'll post things that they've learned, you know, with the hope of helping other people. But what happens is, you know, after doing this as a habit, habit, they become people that other people are looking to. And without realizing it, they have become this this self-appointed shepherd, this non-ordained person who is functioning as as an officer in the church really ought to be functioning. Um, Because people will listen to them because they like what they have to say, because they're winsome, because they're charismatic, or whatever it is. But that's not the ordained means that God has put in place. So that's the first thing. God has given gifts of specific offices, which only exist within the context of the particular structure of the local church. Secondly, he's given gifts to men, which would be each, each one of us he's given gifts. If you go back and look at the earlier part, In verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. There is this picture that, especially in in more of the ancient history, when a a king would go out to fight in his battles and he 
He would be victorious over another people. Well, he would take them as captives, and he would take the spoils of war, the riches of their, their uh, people group, their nation, or whatever it is, their tribe, and he would bring them back to his own citizens, and he would distribute them to the people. You see David actually doing this before he was king, and yet he had his band of mighty men, and they would go uh, fight against the people in the south or fight against the people in, in the east and conquer these little towns, these, these villages, these small kingdoms, and they would bring back the spoils, and he would send it to the elders of the land. So we see this happening, you know, and that's the picture here. Christ has gone into enemy territory, and he has won the battle, and now he has the spoils of war, and he's giving gifts to men. He's distributing to you as the people of God. Now, there's several implications that are very important for us to understand that I think people just go right by. One, it means that everyone here whose trust is in Christ, who is a member or citizen of the kingdom of God, has been given a gift. And I'm pausing there because I don't know if everyone actually believes that. You look at yourself and you think out of humility, oh, I can't do anything well. And, you know, it's this, it's this feigned aspect of humility. But what you're really doing is you're saying, I don't believe what the Scripture says. You have been given a gift, a spiritual gift. You do. And recognize that. By the grace of God, He has given you a gift because He Himself has been victorious in His battles. The second thing to notice is he, he's given you a gift for a purpose. And the purpose is what we've been seeing, the building up of the body of Christ. That's why he's given you a gift. Now that has all kinds of implications on how you use that gift, right? Because when we think about, oh, God has given me a gift. He's, he's, he's given me the ability to teach or to preach or to administer or to serve or whatever it is that it might be that he's particularly gifted you to think of. And that can, that can give a sense of, of pride. It can give a sense of fulfillment. It can be something that is very easy for us to begin to act upon because it makes us feel good. To exercise our gift because it, we have a sense of fulfillment by doing that. We have a sense of importance by doing that. And if we get in a situation where it's not going to result in those kinds of things... We just, we don't want to do it. And you think, well, that's a misunderstanding of why he gave you those gifts. You're called to use those gifts for the building up of the body of Christ, not the building up of your own ego. For the building up of the body of Christ. Sometimes when you use your gift, it results in very unpleasant things. But nonetheless, you're called to use that gift. And it doesn't mean that you only have one gift, by the way. Because you remember, what is the ultimate goal? The goal, of the reason that God has given you the gift is for the building up of the body of Christ. And here's where people, I think, get too locked up in their gifts. They think about their gifts, you know, they do one of those spiritual gift assessments, and they find out, oh, I'm gifted in this area and that area. And therefore, if there's a, a need that exists in the area that doesn't ref, isn't reflected on those, that chart... You think, oh, I don't have to do that because that's not my spiritual gift. And if there's no one who, who recognizing that as their spiritual gift, guess what happens to the body? It doesn't get done. And the body is not built up. 
You know how many quarterbacks there are on a football team? This is a trick question. <laughs> how many teams that you know of have only one quarterback? That's a bad place to be, isn't it? You're just one step away from disaster, one bad misstep into disaster. The team often will have, like, at least, uh, at least at the college or professional level, will have at least minimal four quarterbacks. Now, that means that three of them are sitting on the bench. They're not exercising their gifts. But what happens if the first one gets injured or something's happened to him, he can't show up? Well, if that next one is not ready to go, can the team even play? No, they can't play. Or if the second one goes down, the third one, he better be ready. Now, why is he the third string or the fourth string? Because he's not quite as good as the first guy. But that doesn't mean he doesn't use his gift. I use that analogy because, you know, as someone in leadership, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the story when we're trying to recruit nursery workers or children's worship training leaders or officers, and you get asked to do that, and people say, oh, no. And you think, well, why are you saying no? Oh, I just don't feel that's my gift. And I think, well, I guess we just won't have a nursery then, or we won't have a worship training, or we won't have an officer. What is your priority in this reason that you have gifts? Just because you have one gift that you know about doesn't mean you don't have the capabilities of doing these other things. How many people in this room, besides being youngsters, adults, aren't capable of serving as an usher or in a nursery worker or in the worship training? Now, you may have to be trained how to do those things, but I don't know of a single adult in here that's incapable of functioning in those roles. So if someone asks you to do that, you say, oh, that's not my gift. You've put a bigger priority on the gift than you have on the reason for the gift. And if there is no reason for the gift, then there's no reason for you to have a gift. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not just nursery workers or children's uh, worship training or serving in the usher. It may be, you know, the work days going on. How many of you can use clippers? How many of you can hold a paintbrush? Now, a lot of us can qualify in those areas. You think, well, I'm not, I'm not the most gifted painter, but that doesn't mean you can't paint. I'm not the most gifted you know, children's person, but it doesn't mean you can't work with children. Now, I mean, some are a little more, a little tighter. When it comes to, for example, officers in the church, you know, well, there's specific criteria given in the pastoral epistles about the qualifications for an elder or a deacon. You know, and, and you know, every year we have a nominating committee whose job is to look out at the congregation and ask the question, who is it that God has gifted to function in these roles? And often they'll go and they'll talk to these people. And often these people will say, oh, no, I'm not going to serve. And you think, okay. Why? Oh, there's someone more qualified. So maybe you're not the first team quarterback. But right now, there is no quarterback in the spot. You are making decisions that run contrary to the whole intent of what God is doing as a church, of building up the body of Christ. You have been given a gift. 
and you have a gift for a reason. And it's not to build you up. It's to make, not to make you feel better. It's not to make you feel fulfilled or affirmed. It's to build up the body of Christ. Period. Lastly, this, that's the first point. God has given us gifts, given us gifts of people and given us gifts that are spiritual in nature that we all have. The second thing is he says that he talks about the way in which we are to exercise these gifts, and that is in love, the love of the people of God. Now, this could be a challenge as well. If you go back and look at how he, how he says this, therefore, I I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then later he goes on to talk about speaking the truth to one another in love. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, this is how we, by the way, counter the the winds of doctrine that are blowing and shifting us about, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So how do we do it? How do we exercise these gifts? We do it in love. Now that can be misconstrued by reading that, because when we think about speaking the truth in love, we, we interpret that often as speaking the truth in a gentle manner, in a winsome manner, in a loving manner. But that's really not the intent. You think, what is the intent of love? The the agape kind of love, the the self-sacrificial love, is for the sake, the sole sake of benefiting the other person. That's the reason that you would say it. Because it is very tempting to want to speak the truth because we like being right. It's very tempting to speak the truth because we want people to know how smart we are. How much we've studied, how much we've prepared. I mean, if you're, if you're in a group and the question is asked and you know the answer and someone else answers it first and you feel, oh, you know, not as, like you missed an opportunity, you think, oh, God, why did you want to speak that truth? <laughs> Just to show off what you know? We speak the truth in love. And it is very tempting to speak truth in the, for the wrong reasons. And that, I think that's true why it says, what he says here, with all humility and gentleness. Humility is an interesting word, right? Humility means not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And oftentimes, speak, we speak the truth because, well, we're just prideful. And there is a lack of humility. But the whole idea of of being humble is to recognize, you know what? I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. And while I I see something I think I need to speak, there is the possibility that I'm not right. And if you ever go speak the truth to somebody without at least the possibility that you're wrong, then it often doesn't come across as very loving. And in fact, if you know somebody and you realize, you know what, I could never talk to this person about that. Well, that's all probably indicative of because you think that other person is too prideful or you yourself are too prideful. (laughs) Because you're afraid of being exposed as wrong 
or you're afraid the other person won't hear it the right way. So there's, there is this, this calling that we are called to speak the truth to each other in love, which means we are going with a big helping of humility, realizing that I could be wrong, and you know what, that's okay, because my identity doesn't come from being right or being the smartest person in the room. Because let's face it, that is, for a lot of people, that is a huge aspect of where they draw their self-worth. That's from feeling at least some measure of superiority in their knowledge. Because they're smart people. God has gifted them, made them smart, intelligent people. And it's so tempting as a result of being one of those people who's been made smarter, intelligent, not that I'm saying I'm one, but if you are, to draw a sense of significance from that. Now, other people are on the other stand. They're, they're on the other stand that they're, they're very charismatic. People like them. And they're very gifted at being liked. And they want people to like them. And their temptation is the very opposite. This does not say the truth because they're afraid they might offend somebody. And they're drawing a sense of worth and a value from being appreciated and liked by everybody else. So to one person, the, the, the question of how do you speak the truth in humility and love, some people are just saying, well, you know what, you just need to be quiet. Because sometimes we are tempted to say things that aren't necessary to be said. Yes, we may be right about them, but it may not benefit the person to know that. Other people who need to speak up when they're not speaking up and risk the fact that someone may get offended by your speaking it. Because guess what? In both those cases, it's not about you. It's about the other person. Because again, why are we speaking the truth in love to one another? We're building up the body of Christ. And specifically, what are we doing? We're helping people resist being, being carried to and fro by all the different winds of doctrine and deceitful schemes that are out there. And when you don't have this happening, we've seen what happens. I mean, if you look, you look around at different places in the world, I mean, churches all struggle. Churches throughout church history, you've seen them struggle when they become less and less practicing these things, they become much, much easier to separate from the anchor that is Christ. And we've seen that happen. You know, not to be too, I'll pick on us personally, you know, we're Presbyterian denomination. We come from the Presbyterian church that, you know, began, if you think about the roots and all the way back in Scotland, right after the Reformation. And there really was only one Presbyterian church coming out of Scotland into the, into the Americas. But as that, as that church began to grow and be influenced by, by teachers of the world, it began to lose sight of the truth. It's actually why our denomination, the EPC, exists. Because there was a long fight for what we believed to be the orthodox truth about the person and nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of the word that he has revealed that said that the church has left it, the, the main Presbyterian church has left Leaving, leaving us no choice but to form a new denomination. Now, whether that's, you know, a bad or good, should have been a harder fight or not, I mean, it's, it's happened. The reality is that when we don't practice this, the church is not held together, and it is susceptible to the winds of doctrine that are going across in the world. So what is my encouragement for you to know? 
Remember, this is all taking place written to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as the sacrifice that bought them into the family of God. I mean, that's always the first application. Where is your trust and where is your faith? And if it is in the work of Christ, then you are a member of the citizen of God's kingdom, of His family. And as a result, you are called to live and walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Which means your job is to seek to build up the body of Christ. Knowing that He's given gifts to the church, particular structure to equip you, knowing that He's given each of you particular gifts that you are required to use when they are needed. Because the question isn't, what can I do? The question is, what needs to be done? That's the first question. And if I'm capable of meeting that need, then guess what? You could call that a gift even though you may not like it. <laughs> but hopefully if you do something long enough, you will learn to love it. You might find out, wow, God is giving me a passion in this area I never knew I had. And how do we do it? Well, we do it by speaking the truth in love, with humility, bearing with one another's pain and struggles and being patient with them as they grow. I, you know, being patient with people as they grow for a pastor is probably one of the hardest things. And if any officer out there, I'm sure you could say the same thing. It's so hard. I mean, if you're a parent, you've seen it with your children. You want them to grow up so much faster than they are. It's hard to be patient. But patience, I would say, is, a, is an act of trusting God because ultimately He's the one that's causing the growth. You may be the tool that he's, choosing, he's ordained to be the means of that growth, but He's the one actually causing the growth. So we are called to trust God, be patient, love one another for the sake of building up the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you called us to build life together, to love the church, your bride, which you've extended a great calling at great cost so that we might be one people, and as one people, a testimony to the whole watching world of the power of your love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk uh, in a manner worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name, amen.